You can go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be continuing our study, and we completed a small section that was from verses 3 to 6. We finished that last week, and we're going to introduce a single verse this week in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to be looking this morning at verse 7. As you recall, as we continue through, this is really just example after example. This is what Hebrews chapter 11 is. It's example after example of men and women who exercised true saving faith. They were able, by God's enablement and by God's grace, to establish by their lives that they were men and women of faith. And these aren't listed. You could think of this as a faith hall of fame. This isn't like a sports hall of fame. If you were to go to Cooperstown, which I've not been, but as a baseball fan, I would love to do that, and you see monuments to the giants of sports, you realize for most of us, there's no hope. We're not going to hit 714 home runs like Babe Ruth. We're not going to have over 4,000 hits. We're not going to be able to do those things. Likewise, if we were to go to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, we realize we're not going to win four Super Bowls like a Joe Montana or like Terry Bradshaw. I think Joe Montana won four Super Bowls. I apologize if he didn't. But the biblical Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11 is different because the premise is even though these are men and women who are giants of the faith, when we see their name, we recognize them and go, wow, these are heavy hitters. The whole point is that every single one of us, if we know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, we can do what they did. Not necessarily recreating the same historical circumstance, for example, of Noah, who we're going to cover this morning, but we have the ability, because of God's enabling power, to live every bit of our lives by faith like they did. In fact, in, when we transition into Hebrews chapter 12, it's going to refer to the fact that because we have so great a cloud of witnesses, Let's do the same thing. Because we have this legacy, this godly legacy of people who live by faith, we as God's children can live victoriously. We can live obedient. We, we can persevere. We don't have to fall away. We don't have to fail. So throughout the chapter, the point is to not only just hold these up as exemplars of faith, but also to encourage us that we can live this way as well. We have the ability, if we have been saved by God's grace, because of the indwelling Spirit of God in us, we have the ability to emulate these great men and women. And so far, we've covered in this chapter, and we're going to cover many more, we've covered three examples of faith. The first was not actually an individual. It had to do with the ability to believe in supernatural God's creation, that God created everything as an example of faith. But then we looked at the life of Abel, and we looked at the life of Enoch. And we were able to see that these two men were great Men of faith. Not only were they actually historical, something that many people have unfortunately abandoned in Christian circles because they don't believe in the historicity of the beginning chapters of Genesis, the Bible treats them as real historical characters. Hebrews 11 makes it clear they were real historical characters. Abel and Enoch were our first two examples of faith. But Abel and Enoch were biblical examples of faith, and we were confronted after looking at Enoch's life. And we finished this last week in, in Hebrews eleven six with this overarching truth about faith. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, him meaning God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. 
This is a general principle. If you don't have this kind of faith, then you're not saved. It's not possible to have a right relationship with God any other way than by faith, period. Without faith, it is impossible. Faith is a necessary prerequisite if you want to have peace with God. Now, I'm going to digress for just a moment from last week's teaching because I think at times, and I'm guilty of this, I can be going through material and I try and make it relevant, but then I don't try and make it relevant. The reason I don't try and make it relevant is because it's relevant whether I do anything or not. It's God's Word. I don't have to create some manufactured way to try and convince you that it's important to study what we're studying. By God's grace, an illustration dropped into our lap this last week, and I just want to highlight it to remind you of how you need to have your discernment out at all times. I broke down that that simple verse that I just read, verse 6, into two basic components, just for discussion purposes, two essential components of a life pleasing to God. First, you must have faith that God is. You've got to believe that God exists. And second, you've got to have faith that God cares. That's just a recognition. You've got to believe in the character of God, that he's interacting, because the Bible makes it clear the demons believe in God but they don't have saving faith. They believe in his existence. So it's, you've got to have a belief that God exists, but you also have to have a belief in the nature of God. And it says very clearly in verse 6 something that is unmistakable. Look back again. I want to emphasize it. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. There, there might even be some references in how that's phrased to the original interaction that God had with Moses. Moses said, well, who, what's your name? I'm going to go to these people, what's your name? And God said, I am. He said, I am. He exists. There's perhaps even allusions to that. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And yet just this week, it was all over the news, Someone who speaks as an authority for Christianity, someone who's looked up to by billions of people, and even unbelievers look to this person as somebody that knows something about Christianity, contradicted that scripture. How many of you heard about the Pope's letter that he wrote to an Italian newspaper writer? Several of you heard about this. Now, I don't think that the Pope is a Bible-believing Christian. I don't think that he's born again. I don't think that he trusts in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. But that's not even the big issue. The big issue is most of the world listens when the Pope talks because they think, well, this guy knows something. You can't be the Pope if you don't know something. The Catholics look to him as their leader, but even other people look to him and think, hey, he must know something. Many people would consider him perhaps the foremost authority on God, even if they don't believe in God. And an unbelieving Italian newspaper publisher started printing some questions to the new pope. I I think from what I was reading that they might have been in the form of editorial open questions to the pope. But the pope took the time to respond in detail by a long letter. I read the entire letter because I've learned over time you don't trust the news media snippets because they can edit and twist and turn. So I had to read, obviously, a copy that was translated to English. I trust that the translation I read was appropriate. I don't understand Italian. But one of the questions that this unbelieving newspaper editor wrote was very direct, and the Pope gives a very direct answer. I'm going to quote from this letter in the English translation of it as I saw it. It says, and this is the Pope writing to this unbelieving newspaper person. He says, first of all, 
you ask if the God of the Christians forgives those who do not believe and do not seek faith. Stop right there. Everybody understands that question. Is there forgiveness for those who don't believe and don't have faith? They don't want faith. Given that, and this is the Pope going on, so that was the question. We can understand that. Given The Pope writes this. Given that, and this is fundamental, God's mercy has no limits. If he who asks for mercy does so in contrition and with a sincere heart, the issue for those who do not believe in God is in obeying their own conscience. Well, guess what? The news media had a field day because they understand what he's saying. Now, one of the things you learn, and I wouldn't encourage you to do this, don't spend any time trying to figure out Catholics. Just focus on Scripture. But as a shepherd and as somebody that interacts and has a certain responsibility of protecting the flock, Catholics say one thing and then there's an army of people that come out and say it doesn't really mean what it says. But the Pope is saying quite clearly, you don't believe, here's what you have to do. You have to follow your conscience. That, that's the outcome. God's mercy has no limits, he says. That's heresy. We just covered last week a verse that makes it clear. God and his words say unequivocally that without belief in the existence of God, one does not have faith. And without faith, you cannot please God. It's another way of saying you cannot have peace with God. In fact, without faith, you're going to incur the wrath of God, whether you obey your conscience or not. The Pope's apparently not constrained by the clear teaching of Scripture. But God's mercy does have limits. Understand that. Hebrews 11.6 teaches that limit. The mercy is shown to those who have faith. Jesus taught limits. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The issue for those who do not believe in God to take that question is not following your conscience. It's coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's understanding that while the mercy of God is available in an expansive way, that mercy is only obtainable through Jesus Christ. So my point, just in the big picture, is even society comes in and shows us why it's so important for us to be constrained by Scripture, to limit our understanding to the Word of God, to go to what God says... So that if we have unbelieving co-workers or we interact with other people and they say, hey, what do you think about what the Pope said? I can get to heaven now because I don't believe. You can tell them that's a lie. Your conscience is tainted by the fall. This notion that you have a conscience, yeah, you have a conscience to rebel against God. So forgive that digression. It was just very important to see how clearly... The teachings of Scripture are being contradicted even by those considered by much of the world to be a foremost authority. But let's look ahead. Let's get into what will be our fourth example of faith. We're going to be looking today at Noah. Now, Noah is one of those Bible characters, one of those people that even as an unbeliever I knew about. Why did I know about it? Because when I was in church as a kid, they had little pictures of an ark. I knew about Noah. He, he, I didn't know anything about God's judgment of wrath and sin, but I knew Noah, and he had these little animals that got on the ark. So there's a sense in which Noah is one of those characters. We come to that name, and we almost go, oh, okay, wow, we know Noah. And the text is fairly straightforward. Noah's example of faith is set forth in a single verse. Follow along with me, and if you... 
I read from the New American Standard Version of the Bible, so if you're reading from something else, it's going to be a similar translation, but the words are this, of verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now, this is a relatively short verse, and it's self-contained. Verse 8 is not talking about Noah. It goes on to talk about Abraham. But there's a lot in this short verse. In fact, so much as I started studying, and this always is the case, I start studying, and I start studying, and I realize, okay, this is going to take more than one week to get here. Because we need to have some background that goes beyond a fuzzy recollection from a children's coloring sheet in kindergarten about Noah. And this morning, we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Genesis getting some background on this man called Noah so that when we come fully into verse 7, we have a full picture of what we're dealing with. So I'm going to ask you to, to hold your place in verse 11, uh, excuse me, in chapter 11 of Hebrews and turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 5. In fact, we're going to spend a lot of time this morning in Genesis chapter 5 perhaps some verses of chapter 6, but we're going to get a little bit of a a context that adds something to Hebrews chapter 11. And I do this in part, understand the original hearers of the book of Hebrews would have had a well-rounded knowledge, likely, of Noah. They came out of a Jewish background, they came out of Jewish culture, and Noah was an exemplar, even in Judaism, of faith. Noah... His life is accounted, recounted in in Genesis chapter 5 and 6. He's referenced in many other places in the Bible, as we'll see next week. But we're going to go back and we're going to tie in and show how all of this in Hebrews 11 is flowing together. In fact, we're going to go all the way back to the life of Enoch, and we're going to reread the scripture we read before. Look all the way down to verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 5, excuse me, of Genesis chapter 5. By the way, just as a pause here, for some reason, as I was typing yesterday, I kept trying to type Moses instead of Noah. If I say Moses today, add Noah, okay? I don't know why that happened. It's just one of those weird things. I typed Moses so many times, and it didn't make any sense. They're not even in the same camp. But anyway, so if you hear Moses, insert Noah in your mind and just humor me. Verse 22 says this. Well, we'll go back to verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Then we see Methuselah. Methuselah, verse 25, lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Verse 27, Methuselah is the oldest man that we know of in all of recorded history. Verse 28, now it's Lamech. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. 
Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So the first thing that I want to point out and that we see is that Noah was the great-grandson of Enoch. This man that we just studied, Noah was the great-grandson of Enoch. So Noah had a family legacy that no doubt introduced him to the existence of the God of the universe. If you follow the timelines of Genesis, Enoch was already taken up by God before Noah was born. Now, I had to write out a piece of paper and write this down, but you see that occurred. So Enoch was already in heaven. Enoch wasn't on the earth at the same time as Noah. But Noah's dad, Lamech, was 113 years old when Enoch was taken to heaven. So he knew his grandfather. Again, Lamech is Noah's dad. Methuselah is his grandfather. Enoch is his great-grandfather. So Lamech would have had 113 years to have seen that he had a grandfather that walked by faith. What did we see over and over again? Enoch walked with God. For those 300 years after Methuselah was born, Enoch walked with God. In other words, he was living an obedient life. So Noah's father and Noah's grandfather would have both seen Enoch as a man who walked with God. It is very likely that Noah would have been told about his godly great-grandfather. At this time, people were living a long time. There was a lot of overlap. I think he would have been talked about his great-grandfather for no other reason than, you know what, one day he was here and one day he was gone. Strangest thing. Grandma couldn't find him. (laughs) So in that context, he would have heard not only about his great-grandfather, but it's likely, we don't have the specific words, but in the nature of things, it seems very likely that Noah would have also heard about his great-grandfather's God. We don't know all the details that we would have had, but we know he knew something about that. What's interesting, Noah's dad also had very high expectations for Noah. Noah's dad had very high expectations for the life of his son. Not only did Noah inherit probably a godly family legacy or at least knowledge of a godly legacy, but he also inherited, so to speak, a family's dreams and expectations. Why do I say that? Let's look again at verse 29. Now he, meaning his dad Lamech, called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work. And from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Now this is one of those verses, the more I looked at it, the more I was tempted to launch onto a whole couple of days of teaching on this. And I realized I I can't do that. But I am going to try and highlight a couple of things that I think verse 29 points out to us that are relevant ultimately for where we're going in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7. The first thing is this. We don't know how long it had been since Adam and Eve. We could probably calculate closely how long they had lived. But Lamech knew that he and everyone else lived under the curse God placed on mankind due to Adam's sin. Look what he says. He says, all these labors arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Cursed. 
very similar language to what God said. Turn back a couple of pages to Genesis chapter 3 and let's look at what God explicitly said. Again, Genesis was likely written down long after the time of Lamech and Noah and others. We believe Moses wrote it in recorded form. But God said this beginning in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Here's the point. Even though the Bible wasn't written down at the time of Noah's life when Lamech was living, there was a revelation of God to mankind that men knew about. How they knew about it, we don't have all the details. Probably there was an aspect of it where it was just passed down from father to son to father to son to father to son. But the fact remains that Lamech knew that he lived under the curse of God. He did. In fact, he knew that he lived under the curse of God and he was hoping that Noah, his son, would bring relief from the curse. Let's look back again at how Lamech said it. Now, he called his name Noah and Noah, without getting into it, it's actually the reason that he says this. It's a play on words. It sounds similar to another word. Now, he called his name Noah saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands. In other words, he was specifically naming Noah because he was hoping that somehow his son would bring relief from the curse that God had placed on mankind. The curse that caused him to have to sweat. The curse that caused bad things to grow. The curse that caused men to have to work hard just to survive. So even as Noah was being born and Lamech was placing on Noah, his son, the hopes of relief from sin... Lamech knew the curse was real and he knew the curse came from God. And he had an inkling in his mind at least that relief from the curse might be possible. And his hope was that his son Noah might be the one through whom peace and rest came. Now Lamech could not possibly have known how instrumental his son was going to be in God's plan But his hopes for his son didn't quite turn out like he was hoping. His desire to have relief ultimately wasn't fulfilled per se in his son because God's judgment was going to come. But for now, that's enough. We understand there's a little bit of a family legacy here. Noah would have known something likely about his history. And the curse was causing heartache for mankind so much so that Noah's dad thought maybe my son will be the instrument to bring relief now I want to look at a couple of other things that I think provide us a context for when we jump into Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 in detail so I want to go back over something that I read several times but I want us to look at a little bit more closely look back again at Genesis chapter 5 verse 22 Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. Verse 26. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. 
Verse 30, then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, if you go prior to verse 22 and you go higher up, you see the same thing. Generally, one person's name is mentioned, and then it says, and there were other sons and daughters, other sons and daughters. The earth was being populated generation by generation. Be fruitful and multiply. They were being fruitful and multiplying. And while Genesis does not give us the numbers, you can imagine men were living hundreds of years. Now some, like Noah, waited a long time to have a child, but then once they started having children, they had other sons and daughters, and they were living hundreds of years in this window. Enoch was 300 years. Methuselah, 782 years after his first child was born. Lamech, 595 years after his first child was born. So what I'm trying to convey to you is some semblance of a picture of what was the earth like at that time. Noah had a lot of relatives. If you look around the earth, it's all in likelihood most of the people on the earth were related to Noah, if not all of them. Probably all of them, actually, because we're so close in human history. Noah had many brothers and sisters. Most of us probably have a sibling. There might be an only child here or there. It's possible Noah had dozens and dozens and dozens of brothers and sisters. Not only that, he had a lot of cousins and a lot of aunts and uncles. Because Methuselah lived 700 and some odd years and was having a lot of kids. So he had a lot of great uncles and great aunts. And on and on it goes. The family reunion at that time must have been a mess. Here's my point of saying that. The earth was populated with all these people. Many of them had the same great-grandfather as Noah. Or the same grandfather. Or the same father. The family history that Noah would have had, where he could point to somebody named Enoch, and he could go back farther and point to a righteous man, Abel. Everybody else on the earth had the same lineage. It's hard to fathom. We know that Noah had some revelation because his father had some revelation from God such that even when he was naming his son, he was going back to the revelation that the earth was living under the curse because of sin. So Noah had all of this perhaps familial revelation that was being passed down that was revelation from God, but so did everybody else. Noah's brothers and sisters had the same thing. And Noah's aunts and uncles and his cousins, and on and on it goes. They also had Enoch as a direct ancestor. They also had Abel as a direct ancestor. No doubt they would have heard some of the same accounts of what God had said and what God had done, and they would have heard about Enoch disappearing. And after 500 years of living with all of these people, Noah began to have kids. And we read in Genesis 5.32 that he had Shem and Ham and Japheth. It's not specifically stated whether he had kids prior to this, but it appears those were his first children. We don't know why it took 500 years. It would be sheer speculation. But Noah started adding to the population. So Noah and his ancestors and his relatives were the inhabitants of the earth. They had the same godly heritage, or at least the same examples in their family tree. They had same exposure, same ability to have known that the earth was under a curse and that there was a God of the universe to whom they were accountable. But Noah reacted to that history and that heritage one way. 
Here's how God describes most of Noah's relatives. Look to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 5 to 7. We're actually going to read through 8 and 12. I'm just going to break it up. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's a, that's a bad indictment. That's a long way from well done, my good and faithful servant. The wickedness of man was great, and every intent of the thought of his hearts was only evil continually. These were Noah's relatives. These were people that had exposure to godly examples. These were people that could trace their lineage to Enoch. These were people that had some revelation of God, and they knew already that their lives were hard because they were living under the curse of God for sin. And yet, there was wickedness everywhere. Every thought of the heart was evil continually. In other words, the depravity was rampant and unrestrained. But verse 8 says something interesting in the midst of all of this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of a miserable family, there was one person who stood out. Verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. That's staggering when you look at where Noah lived and who he was dealing with. This wasn't just bad unbelievers around. This was his family. Unlike everybody else, who had turned and weren't living like Enoch, Noah was doing the same thing. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons. Verse 10, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 11, let's look again. Reminder, this is what Noah was living in. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. It's impossible to cover all of the depravity that was rampant. But I'll say it this way. Noah's family was rotten. However bad you think your family is, Noah's got you beat. You think about Lamech had many sons and daughters. There was one who was righteous, Noah. Apart from Noah's wife and three sons, and we don't know much about their character, but God spared them, every one of Noah's relatives were vile. So vile that God decided he would wipe them from the face of the earth. All of them. Every single one. That's a horrible picture in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The wickedness was great. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11 makes it clear there was violence. The family was fighting violently. I've got to tell you, the more I study that, the more it fascinates me. And it proves to me the doctrine of the depravity of man. It fascinates me because these people had the same lineage as Noah. They had the same godly examples in their family tree. Enoch was their ancestor too. Abel was their ancestor too. 
They knew righteousness by example. They could see it. They could hear about it. They had some revelation of God somehow. Yet the effect of these godly examples and this revelation wasn't to cause them to love God and follow him like Noah did. They were wicked rebels to the core, violent, corrupt in every way. If you've ever been hurt badly by the sin of your family members, understand you're not alone. Noah had to have known what this was like. Yet in the midst of this cesspool of evil and corruption and wickedness and violence, one man stood out. In the midst of what literally must have been hell on earth, there was one man that kept his eyes focused on the Lord. It wasn't just that society had gone to pot just generally. It was his own family, his brothers and his sisters and his cousins and his nieces and his nephews and his aunts and his uncles. Yet in the midst of this, Noah was a righteous man. Now this is the first time somebody is called righteous in Scripture. We know by the testimony of God that Abel was righteous. God considered Abel righteous. So it's not that Noah is the first righteous man. It's the first time it's recorded in Scripture of someone. And Noah would not have been perfect. We know, for example, after the flood that he got drunk. But unlike everyone around him, Noah was like his grandfather Enoch. He walked with God. He loved God. In fact, it appears, and again, taking his wife and his three boys out of it, it appears that Noah was the only person of that generation who was trying to please God. Let me encourage you for a moment. Some of you are the only Christians in your family. You've got brothers and sisters that don't believe, or perhaps parents who don't believe, or children who don't believe. You're trying to walk with the Lord, and some of you realize that the rest of your families think you're nuts. They think you're a fool for wasting your time, and in their minds you're chasing unicorns and rainbows. And some of you have a solid legacy of faith. You come from families that there are generations of Christians, and you're trying to live a life of faith. And yet other family members who had the exact same family legacy as you, they had the same exposure to the gospel as you, they had the same privileges as you, you recognize you and you scratch your head, they've rejected the Lord. They reject the Lord even though they've seen faithful examples of Christians who followed Christ. Wherever you find yourself, Noah's example is going to bring you hope. Because we're going to be looking next week and we're going to see in detail how Noah responded in the midst of a sea of wickedness. And not just generic witnesses, wickedness across the globe somewhere else that you could read about in the paper, but it was affecting his family and his brothers and his sisters and his nieces and nephews and aunts and uncles and on and on. It was close to home. But you'll see that it was possible, no matter how bad it was around him, for Noah to walk with God which means no matter how bad things may be for you at times, it's possible for you to walk with God. I'm going to read verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 11 one more time as we bring this to a close. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Again, it won't surprise you if you've been here at all for any other teachings, but the starting point of everything is by faith. 
Why did Noah follow God when every other person in his family had turned their back on God and was sinning as quickly and as frequently as they desired? Because Noah had faith. As with every other member of this great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 11, as in the case of every other person who is being held up to you and I by God as an example that we can follow them, the starting point is faith. Next week we're going to get into the rest of the verse. We're going to look a little bit more specifically at what Noah did in light of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7. But understand this. To get value from this text, you have to have faith. It's possible to be around the teaching or the revelation of God. It's possible to have a family legacy and still be lost. Noah's family shows that. It's interesting that when the Apostle Paul is writing to churches, ostensibly to believers, he says, examine yourselves to see that you're in the faith. Let me encourage you week after week to make sure that you have saving faith. Lest you be confused, we've already covered verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Coming to church doesn't add up on your list. Salvation isn't by weighing the scales. The 51-49, I win. The gospel is that we all have hearts that are described by Genesis chapter 6. That our hearts are evil and they're wicked. And that we continually seek ways to rebel against God. But we live in a different era. And if we had lived at that time, our sinful hearts would have resulted in us drowning when God judged the earth. But by God's grace, we live now. And God finally sent someone that could bring peace from the curse. And it wasn't Noah. It was Jesus Christ. And he came and he lived a perfect life, never disobeying. Jesus walked with God. Jesus is God. But as the God-man, he perfectly obeyed. He never sinned, and yet the world around him was corrupt and evil. And in Noah's time, God flooded the earth to kill all of humanity. Something far worse happened to Christ. Far worse because he endured the wrath of God that should have fallen on us. And the sin that every believer bore, every believer committed, was punished by God. Not by a flood, but by God's wrath being poured out on his innocent son on the cross. The way to have peace with God isn't to be Noah. And it's not to comply with rules. It's to understand that God must punish sin. And we'll either be punished ourselves or... We've been punished through Christ. In other words, our sins were laid on Christ. Understand that to live like Noah, to live like Enoch, to live like Abel, to live like the other godly people that you've seen, to live like a Bud Hughes or a Frank Simano, you must have faith. Which means you recognize there is no other way for me to have peace with God. But to trust that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sinners... And there's enough mercy at the cross for you and me. If you believe that, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone and you realize you have no other hope for your salvation, praise the Lord and be encouraged by the examples of these men and women of faith. And if you haven't believed that, cry out to God for mercy today. 
that he might open your eyes to see the beauty of the salvation that is available freely because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Please join me as I close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your mercy. Lord, as we look at the life of Noah, as we begin next week to look at the flood that you brought on the earth when you judged all of mankind, Lord, we realize, if we're honest with ourselves, that we deserved that type of punishment. We deserve to be destroyed. We have evil hearts. And yet, Lord, we have the privilege of living on this side of the cross. We understand that you did send a man to the earth who could bring relief from the curse. But that man wasn't Noah. It was the God-man, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us find our peace and satisfaction in Christ and him alone. Lord, I pray that you would bring salvation to any who need it. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a renewed sense of urgency to share the gospel with those that we know don't trust in you. And Lord, give us hope and comfort and encouragement to walk with you even in the midst of this dark generation. Lord, help us not fall into self-pity and think we live in the worst possible time with the worst sinners, with the worst evil. Lord, Noah lived in something no doubt worse. And yet even in the midst of that wickedness, it's possible to walk with you and to live by faith. Pray that you would enable us to do this and that we could bring you glory. And we ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.